Welcome to the Heights Sermon Series Podcast, where each week you'll hear a new message that'll help you with your life shaped by the Word. Well, good morning, everybody. Wasn't that wonderful? Good to have our multi-gen choir back in the house. I guess that's their first time this school year, and looking forward to them monthly being a part with us. You know, it's a, it's a busy season for our multi-gen, our adult choir and orchestra. They did a, a recording uh, this week, worked all, all Friday, Saturday, working on that. Then in a couple of weeks, we're going to be hosting about five, 600 churches uh, here at, at the Heights for the SBC of Virginia, and they're going to be a big part of, of that. And then, of course, Christmas is right around the corner. So, you know, when we're enjoying what they lead us in, they've put a lot of work and effort in that. Uh, so be praying for them as they're... Thank you. <laughs> Be praying for them as they head into this busy season. You know, back in the announcements and thinking of the season in front of them, you heard that we're going to be selling tickets this year, $5 a ticket uh, to our Christmas production. And if you're new to our church, that might sound like I, I haven't seen that before. And by new, I mean if you've joined in the last 10 years. Because for about 10 years, we, we did sell tickets to our production. They were usually $7, $8 for, for everybody that, that was coming. And the, the big reason we do that is because we're just running out of money, and we thought this would be a good way to make a lot more. Um, let, me, let me state the obvious. We're not even trying to break even. That's not what the goal of, of ticket sales are. And you may wonder, well, what's the cost? It's all volunteers and children up here. You know, I was, I was asking Dale, I said, hey, explain to me what the cost is like in, in, in a production like that. And I was kind of surprised. I've been in ministry a long time. I never knew this. Do you know what a single song costs us to, to purchase the rights to that and the orchestration that goes to it? $350. So you take like the Christmas production, which has 10 new songs, well, so that's $3,500. That's one, one cost. And so, and it goes up from there. A lot of different things that we do. So tickets are not about making money or paying for the production uh, or anything like that. Probably the simplest way to explain what tickets are is a way to manage the crowd and make sure that we're filling the sanctuary up evenly at all of our different services. Last year, we were packed. We probably could have had more, but you know, we don't know. We don't know what's going to show up. We've also had a situation where one, one presentation was packed, people leaving, can't get a seat, and then you turn around in another production and it's, it's 80% full. Because we don't, we don't know how to direct people. We don't know what, what everybody's coming to. Well, tickets gives us a, a, a clear insight. Uh, to doing that. So it manages. We have done free tickets at the Heights. And I'm talking about our whole history. We had years where we did free tickets to our big productions. When you give free tickets, though, you have to limit it because some of you'd say, I'd like all 5,000 tickets. And so what do we do? Well, we usually limited it to 10 tickets. Now, we're good Americans. So if you tell me the maximum is 10, guess how many I'm getting? 10. I want all 10 tickets and I intend on using them. But when that night comes, guess what? I use three, or I use eight, or I use seven. We used to give out way more tickets than the, than the room would hold, 
And yet we'd still be looking at, at 60, 70% full many of those times. So free, free tickets just doesn't work. And when you invite your friends, and we really encourage you to do that, it's not only going to be a great presentation of Christmas, a great time of worship, the gospel is going to be shared. When you give your friends a free ticket, guess what value that has? None. You're just handing them an announcement. But when you hand them a ticket that costs something, even as little it is, that really is a gift, and they tend to put value with it. Treat it as a little bit more special. So that's a, some of the reasoning and, and why we're doing that. We're seeing a, a lot of people coming back to church, come to the presentations, and we want to be able to, to manage the crowd. A lo- it is a little bit cheaper. We're doing $5, and we're not doing $5 for everybody. 12 and under uh, will be free. So encourage you to begin thinking about how many tickets you want as soon as next week. That's when sales, ticket sales will go open, and like two days after that is the fall festival, and we're anticipating about six to 7,000 people at the fall festival, and we're going to be making ticket sales available at that as, as well, and uh, the community usually gobbles these up. Uh, y'all know that, and so I, I encourage you to come ready to, to think about when that is and how you want to use it, who you want to invite and uh, get those tickets next week. Man, folks, I tell you, we've had a, a, just a phenomenal week here at the Heights. We had a team return home yesterday from Nicaragua, 23 people. They, uh, yeah, home safely. They, uh, I'm just going off of Facebook here. One day, they, they walked around to homes and provided 100 homes bags of groceries. Uh, through the week, they were building houses. They built three homes uh, for families. Now, not the kind of homes you would see here, but there are homes there, and they do put these people in shelter. And uh, let's see, we had a, a medical team there. I know on one day alone, I think they saw 140 patients. So we had that team out in the world. We still have our team over here on the interstate feeding about 100 people every Friday. And all of us together, last two Sundays, I guess, y'all have picked up 1,151. That was the number before church started this morning, 1,151 of those shoe boxes. Uh, I imagine by now we're getting close to 1,200, which is how many we had. Folks, that's 1,200 children living in impoverished areas around the world that are going to get a Christmas gift from you. But that Christmas gift, it, it does so much more than just provide for that child. It really opens doors for missionaries that live in those areas year-round. And so it really provides a way for the gospel. So there's just an average week at the Heights. Thank you for everything you do, the way you serve and sacrifice. I, I Looking at all you did, I actually I was talking to our missions pastor, Wes, and I said, Wes, we're beating our people to death. I do feel that for you, by the way. I mean, but y'all just rise and give and serve and go. Thank you. Thank you so much for your love for Christ and how you do that. And, of course, while we're doing all that, you were giving to, to retired missionaries and pastors uh, through our special offering to the Mission Dignity Fund. I won't give a total on that yet. It's just started. We'll share that in a couple of weeks. But so much you guys are doing. Th- I just want to say thank you. So we're, we're continuing today our series in Genesis. And that brings us to chapter 39. If you want to open there to your Bibles or get your Bible app, Genesis 
39. If you're new to our church and wondering why we're turning to Genesis 39, we have uh, been in a series studying Genesis since, since Easter. So we've been at it a long time, and you may feel like, oh, I've gotten here at the end, I don't know where we are. Well, there's actually a little bit of a sub-series, a small series in Genesis that we've just started, and that's looking at the life of Joseph. About a quarter of Genesis, 25% of Genesis is on the life of Joseph. So today, these final few messages leading up to Easter are all kind of a little set themselves. So you're at the end, but you're also kind of at the beginning. And we're sure glad that you're here with us for that. You know, as we uh, open to chapter 39, I'm, I'm reminded the Bible gives us, it gives us a couple of rated R stories. It, it gives us a couple of provocative, kind of sensual, sexual tension stories. I think of David and Bathsheba, right? Samson and Delilah. Or the story that we're looking at today, Joseph and Potiphar's wife. What, what's interesting about these stories, they're, they're different, okay? They're, they're separate. They're not all the same. So you've got, over here, you've got Samson and Delilah. Now, every story in the Bible is there, and what we know about these people is there because God is showing you and I. He wants us to learn from successes, from failures, from their walk with God. And so we look at Samson and, and, uh, and David And we're going to learn something from them, from their failure. We're going to learn from their sin. Whereas for Joseph, we're going to learn from his success, his obedience. But here's here's what I feel is I'm like the crazy thing. It seems to me like that should have been flip-flop. We should have been learning from Joseph's failure and David and Samson's success. Why do I say that? Because David and Samson, when they fail, they're both in a season of life where and they're really experiencing God's power, God's presence. They're experiencing God's blessing. And man, right in the middle of that, they, they head off toward this sin. Whereas Joseph, and we'll see this more in a moment, he's in a season of life where he might be, I'm not saying he is, but he might be wondering if God even exists. And yet he's the one who shows us how to navigate a world touched and filled by sin and temptation. Let's look at his story, Genesis 39, and I'm going to begin in verse 1. When Joseph was taken to Egypt by the Ishmaelite traders, he was purchased by Potiphar, an Egyptian officer. Potiphar was captain of the guard for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Captain of the guard for Pharaoh, so that'd be like he's head of the secret service. This, This is the personal bodyguard to the president and runs all the people who protect and care for the president. That That's the role Potiphar has. The Lord was with Joseph, so he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. This pleased Potiphar. So he soon made Joseph his personal attendant. He put him in charge of his entire household and everything he owned. From the day Joseph was put in charge of his master's household and property, the Lord began to bless Potiphar's household for Joseph's sake. All his household affairs ran smoothly, and his crops and livestock flourished. So Potiphar gave Joseph complete administrative responsibility over everything he owned. 
With Joseph, with Joseph, he didn't worry about a thing except what he was going to eat that day. Now, that's a pretty good gig if you can get that. Yeah, your big stress, your big problem, what am I going to have for dinner? Joseph was very handsome and a well-built young man. And Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. Come and sleep with me, she demanded. But Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing from me except you because you're his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. She kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day, but he refused to sleep with her, and he kept out of her way as much as possible. One day, however, no one else was around when he went in to do his work. She came and grabbed him by his cloak, demanding, Come on, sleep with me. Joseph tore himself away, but he left his cloak in her hand as he ran from the house. When she saw that he was holding his cloak, when she saw that she was holding his cloak and he had fled, she called out to to her servants. Soon all the men came running. Look, she said, my husband has brought this Hebrew slave here to make fools of us. He came into my room to rape me, but I screamed. When he heard my when he heard me scream, he ran outside and got away. He left his cloak behind with me. She kept the cloak with her until her husband came home. Then she told him her story. That Hebrew slave you brought into our house tried to come in and fool around with me, she said. But when I screamed, he ran outside, leaving his cloak with me. Potiphar was furious when he heard his wife's story about how Joseph had treated her. So he took Joseph and threw him into prison where the king's prisoners were held. And there he remained. You know, I I find Joseph one of the most impressive lives that God demonstrates for us, that shows us in Scripture. And he, I, I think, I think he may be one of the top one or two people when I get to heaven. I, I want to visit with. I, I want to. Hey, Joseph, how did how did you do it? How did you hold on to God through all of this? And I'm not I'm not just referring to the story we just read, but this story along with the whole story from Genesis 37 to 50. How did you hold on to God? You remember in, in chapter 37, God comes to him and, and basically kind of in our vernacular today, God said to him, hey, I love you and I've got a great plan for your life. Wouldn't you like to hear God speak that into your life? I love you. I see you. I've got a plan. I've got a purpose. And, and, and man, Joseph said, sign me up. And the next day, his, his whole life just went straight to garbage. I mean, he already lived in a tense family situation. Some of it may be brought on by himself. But he lived in a tense situation. There was, there was physical abuse, mainly aimed and directed at him. And, and then it ultimately culminates in that his own family sells him into slavery. I would imagine a lot of us have dealt with betrayal. Maybe it's even something you've had a hard time carrying throughout your life. How would you ever process this for the rest of your life? Your own flesh and blood sold you, sold you into slavery. How does he ever process that? How does he believe in God? And yet, we open up chapter 39, and he's living for the Lord. Other people, it's not like a private personal faith. We know he's living for the Lord because the people around him see that he's living for the Lord. 
I mean, this is really, it wouldn't, it wouldn't take much imagination to see Joseph here going, you know, I tried the whole God thing. Yeah, it just didn't work for me. Or, or to be thinking, hey, you know, why can't I have some fun? Why can't I be happy? I've done the right thing. I've paid the price. Look what it's gotten me. I deserve to be happy. Boy, those thoughts very much describe our culture, our way of thinking today. Now, of course, you and I are nothing like our culture, right? <laughs> Except that we are. We're all impacted. We're all influenced. And our thinking is me first, and I deserve to be happy. But that's not what Joseph shows us. That's not how he's thinking. Joseph profoundly gives you and I a way to navigate a sinful world, a way to navigate temptation. You know, when we look at this, we, we usually limit this story to thinking about handling temptation, but it, it's bigger than that. It, it, it's bigger than temptation. It's just handling sin going on all around us. How do I walk? How do I navigate through that? I see three things here in Joseph's life. Two things are more... Uh, there are things constantly going on inside me. There are things I've got to be building and thinking and doing all the time. And, and then the third thing is an action. It's an action we take in the moment. So let, let's see what these three things are. The first two are both anchored, both found in verses 8 and 9. Verses 8 and 9. So how do we navigate a fallen world, a sinful world, of which we've all contributed, right? Okay, when I'm navigating a sinful world, I've, I've contributed to a sinful world. How, how do we do that? You know, one of the things I, that kind of stuns me here, you'll notice his kind of his opening response to this. He said, hey, somebody trusts me. I, I can't do this because somebody, and in this case, it's his master, but somebody trusts me. That really seems to mean something to Joseph. Somebody's counting on me. I have a responsibility to somebody. Somebody is trusting, is, is depending upon me. Folks, that's not a little point. That, that's not a little point in our self-worshiping culture and world where we're measuring decisions and thoughts and values and actions by, hey, what does this do for me? Does this advance my cause? Does this advance my agenda? Does this make me happy? Well, Joseph is working through those, that question, but he, his lead is, hey, what does this mean to the people around me? I have a responsibility. I mean, there, there's kids, and there's parents, and grandparents, and there's neighbors, and there's coworkers, and there's classmates, and, and teammates. I've, I've got a responsibility to them. Whatever I'm going to do next, I, I need to take that into light. And boy, folks, we just live in a world where that, that responsibility to, to others just seems to be almost non-existent. Hey, I told you I was going to be there. I told you you can count on me. Ah, I had a bad day. I haven't had a good week. Hey, that's real, right? I mean, we really do have bad days. We, we really have had bad weeks. Okay, that needs to factor into your decision. But what about a responsibility? What about the fact somebody, something was counting on you. It's just amazing how that just becomes 
Nothing. Instantly, the moment I'm not there, the moment I don't feel it. You know, this isn't just a, wow, look at this special life of Joseph buried deep down in the Bible. Maybe we can learn some. No, we're commanded to be like Joseph. Look up here at Philippians chapter 2. Verses 3 and 4. Now, obviously, Joseph is right here at the beginning of our Bible. Uh, Philippians is way down almost toward the end of our Bible. And look what it's commanding us. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Now, ambition there is not just talking about, you, you know, taking over something, defeating something. Hey, ambition can be good. And, and the Bible's not against you thinking about what advances your causes, what advances your agenda, what advances what you want to be and do. It's just saying, don't do anything, do nothing that is just driven by your agenda, that is just driven by selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Man, this is a big line right here. Count others more significant than yourselves. Folks, that's not a suggestion for a neat way to live, to be a really kind person. Every Christ follower has this on their lives. In humility, count others more significant than yourself. Okay, now I'm going to count myself, but as I'm making this decision, I'm going to count them as more. Let each of you look not only, now notice it says not only. It doesn't say you can't take care of your interest. It doesn't say don't look at your interest at all. It says just don't look only at your interest, but also the interest of others. Now, I don't know how any thinking person can read that and not think, why? Why would I do? Matter of fact, let me tell you something. In our world, if you do that, you're going to get eaten alive. I think in our world, if you do that, there's places where you will absolutely, it's guaranteed, you'll be taken advantage of. Because the people around you are not playing by that rule, are they? And when you're trying to play by a rule that nobody else is playing by, you can get run over. Why in the world would God ask that? Why would I do that? Very simple, because he did it for you. I mean, it's just as simple as that. You know, I've said this in a number of sermons, different applications and places, and it certainly fits here. God has never asked you to be or do anything that he hasn't been or done for you. He's never asked you to go to some impossible place to do something that can't be done, to do something that he wasn't willing to do for you. Not only is he willing, he already has. And that's why, and I didn't put it up there, but if you look at verse 5, it says, have the same mind of Christ. Well, what's the mind of Christ? Verses 3 and 4. That's what was going on inside of Jesus' mind when he left heaven to come get you. We call it Christmas, I think. The incarnation. When he left, that's what he was thinking, that's what he was feeling, that's what he was doing. Folks, we have a biblical responsibility to every person in our lives. Every, the stranger, the stranger, you have a biblical responsibility. Hey, you know one of our responsibilities to every person on the planet? To live the word of God and make it look attractive. To show what it looks like to follow Christ on good days and bad days and ugly days. I don't want any ugly days, but without a few ugly days, how would I show the people around me what it looks like, well, like Joseph, to hold on to God through that? 
Without some ugly days, people around me may never get a chance to see what that looks like. I've got a responsibility to that. And it's not just that we're responsible to every person around us, but the other word there is biblical. I don't make up. I don't define. I don't set the limits on what that responsibility is. God's word defines what that responsibility is to kids, to parents, to grandparents, to classmates, to strangers, to enemies. Oh my gosh, I've got responsibility to enemies? Yeah, it's, it's going to define how I have a relationship with the enemies. It's a biblical responsibility. That means when I'm making decisions, what's my next step look like? How do I respond? Do I, do I not? I'm weighing in that there's people all around me that I'm responsible to. And that means something. It becomes a part of our decision. Second thing we see with with Joseph. How about this? He actually cares what God thinks. I mean, I mean, you see how, we, how he handles this. Okay, one, I've got a responsibility around me to people around me. But number two, I can't do this. God said no. End of discussion. You know, folks, I, there's several things here in Joseph's life. He just treats with such simplicity. And I notice in myself, and I'm guessing in you, we tend to make it all very complex, and it's hard, and it's difficult, and what's the secret formula for doing all this? Let me tell you what our problem is, is we ignore the simple. It's a sin, so the answer is no. Not, nothing to debate, nothing to discuss. Well, what about... Hey, you know what? We all know what wrong is. We know the line out there. The longer you're thinking on the wrong, the longer you're discussing the wrong, the more you're moving toward that wrong. Whatever you think your discussion is, you're moving toward the wrong. You know, when I see what Joseph did here, I'm reminded of Psalm 119, verse 11. It says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You know, a lot of times when we Throw a verse up like that, we're probably talking about scripture memory, aren't we? Yeah, hey, here's, here's why we need to be remembering, why we need to be memorizing. How am I going to keep from sinning? I'm going to store up God's word in my heart. Well, memory certainly is what that means. Yes, that's very much a part of it. But oh my gosh, that's not the end of it. Storing up God's word in my heart is building the value of God's voice as I walk through anything and everything. How am I going to do that? I'm going to read God's word. I'm going to study God's word. I'm going to talk about God's word with with friends and family and ponder it and work it out. I'm going to meditate on it. I'm going to pray over it. I'm I'm going to memorize it. I'm going to put myself under the preaching and the teaching of God's word. I'm looking for every avenue to build sharply God's word in my life. Now, I'm a preacher, so do I have to put myself under the preaching of God's word? Does this count? I can't hear myself. You know, I I actually listen to two to three preachers every single week. Uh, Almost every single week, the good ones. And, And you know, I'm not listening to research for a coming series. I'm not listening to see if they've got something for my message this week. I'm I'm listening the same way you are. Man, I need to know God. I need to grow and learn. I need to put other teaching there. Because sometimes if, I'm, if, if it's only my thoughts, my thoughts can get off out in a tangent somewhere and I can get out of balance or I can just be wrong. And so all that teaching helps. Hey, am I, you know, keep me bad on that road. All of these things are building the value 
of God's word in our lives. You know what the psalmist doesn't want? He doesn't want to say the things you and I say all the time when we do wrong. Oh, I didn't know. Oh, I I didn't understand. Or our favorite one, especially with mom and dad, right? Oh, I didn't even hear. I didn't hear you. I'm sorry. Okay, maybe you did. Maybe you didn't. They heard. I promise they heard. But you see what I'm saying about the psalmist? He doesn't want to say, I didn't know. I didn't understand. I didn't hear. He's in there saying, I want to hear. I want to understand. I want to make sure that I know. Because the great value in his life, the great value in Joseph's life, is God's voice. It's God's word in that moment. You know, temptation by its very nature seems kind of big in the moment, right? I mean, that's what makes it temptation. It, this is going to give me what I want. It seems, it feels so big. We, we talk about giving in to temptation. What does that mean? It overpowered me. Okay, so if it has that power, then I've got to find a greater desire than whatever that sin is offering. It seems Joseph's desire is to love and obey God. It seems Joseph's desire is to know God's voice. And folks, he didn't muster that up in the moment. It was already there. It's how he lived day in and day out. Are are you building that value in your life? Is it in process? Hey, it's a building project, isn't it? I, I don't know that we get done in this life, but are we building? Is that the great desire in our lives? So what do I see in Joseph as he's navigating a world of sin? He's very cognizant. I have a responsibility to everybody around me. You've heard me say this before. You've never committed a sin in private. You've never committed a sin that only affects and touches you. It is always, 100% of the time, going to impact people around you. I can't do this. I've got a responsibility to people. I can't do this. God said no. God said yes. God said go. God said turn. I got to do what God says. And then the third thing we actually see, okay, sin's right in front of us. It's pounding. I'm feeling a lure. I'm feeling a call to it. What do I do now? I'm trying to build. I promise I'm trying to build God's voice into my life, but I'm losing. What do I do? Run. That's it. You see there in verse 12, he fled. Probably should have taken his jacket. (laughs) That says something about how important it was to quickly get out of there. You know, again, I think we try to make this very complex and, and overwhelming, and I just don't know what to do, and I've tried, and I've tried. Have you done this? Have you just gotten as far away from that as you can and as close to God as you can? Because the Bible doesn't seem to be offering a complex 27 steps to handling this. It just says, God said, no, now run. And, and folks, if we're honest with ourselves, hey, I, I, listen, I'll just talk about me. And I feel pretty confident doing this because I, I assume the same of you. There's a lot of sins I felt bad about, guilty about, ashamed of in front of God, and I don't remove them. I say I'm sorry, but they're still there. They're still there. I, you know, I keep them close by. I try to change. You know, if I'm feeling bad enough, I might change something, but it, it, it just always stays right there in reach. Let me tell you something. God is not looking. This is, there's not a reward for this. God is not looking to see how strong you can be in standing around temptation all the time. 
God is not looking to see how you manage, how well you manage sin. He's looking to see how fast you can run. And here again, this is not some secret we find, ooh, gosh, have you, hey, have y'all met Joseph? He gives us the, no, this is a theme in Scripture. It runs through the, but we're looking for the complex, the 27 steps. Look what Jesus said in Matthew 18. If your eye causes you to sin and tear it out and throw it away. Uh, is there a, so is there another way to do this? <laughs> It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Uh, whole another sermon, but it looks like Jesus believes in hell. Maybe the rest of us should catch up with him. Look at another verse. This is Corinthians. Flee from sexual immorality. Well, that's just what we saw, isn't it? And, and, you know, Genesis is in the beginning of our Bible. These verses are near the end of our Bible. Very consistent theme. Now, folks, here's the good news, okay? This is not actually based on how fast you can run. You don't need track shoes for this. Nobody's going to put a stopwatch on you. It's not even based on you poking out your eyeballs. That's really good news, isn't it? Now, that's not what Jesus means there. You say, well, how do you know that? I, I, Pastor, I thought you took the Bible literally. Oh, I absolutely do. I believe this is the literal word of God. Every word is from his mouth. Every word is what he intends. And we should always, in our interpretation, start with what does the plain text say in black and white. Start there before you do everything else. But in taking a literal view of Scripture, that doesn't mean there's not symbolism. That doesn't mean there's not context. That doesn't mean there's not genre, writing styles that help us to understand what is going on there. And I know that Jesus didn't mean this literally because Jesus is the smartest person ever. And so he knows, just like I know, I can poke out both my eyes and still lust. I can poke out both my eyes and still covet. You, You see, poking out my eyes there did not actually resolve my sin. Well, then why would Jesus say that? Think about it. When you hear Jesus, hey, go and poke out your eyes. What, what's your thought? Gosh, that seems a little over the top. That's your answer. Gosh, that seems a little bit severe. That's exactly what Jesus means. Be severe, be over the top in getting away from the temptation. Be severe, over the top, and running to deal with temptation in your lives. Now, again, we say, oh, I tried, and I just can't do it. You know, you've got to do, you're going to do that when you're strong. Now, I don't, again, I don't know if you're like me. You know when I find I'm strongest against my own sin? Right after I've committed it. Do <laughs> you know what I mean by that? See, after I've given in... After I've sinned, that's when what? That's when I hate myself. I feel guilty. I feel ashamed. I feel bad. I say, God, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. I don't know if y'all said this. Maybe I'm the only one. Lord, I want to say I'm sorry here, but it just sounds stupid coming out of my mouth because I've said I'm sorry for this same thing 870 times. So I don't know why you would believe me. I don't believe me. You know what I'm talking about? And then out come the words. I bet you've said them. God, I'm, I'm never going to do this again. 
And you know what? I really believe this about myself and I believe it about you. When I said, God, I'm never going to do this again, I meant it. I really did. I meant it. I don't, I don't ever, ever want to be like this, say that, respond in that. I don't ever want to do this. I'll never do it again. And I mean it right up to the point where I don't. You see why we fail is because our plan is to be strong. And hey, maybe tomorrow I will be strong. As a matter of fact, maybe I'm going to have some real victory, some real strength over this for six months running. But you know what I have no plan for? For when weakness comes back around. And folks, you will be weak again. If your plan is to never be weak, you have already failed. Because you will be, I will be weak again. So the time to be severe, the time to run, well, it is when I'm weak, but by the nature of being weak, I'm probably not going to be severe, and I'm probably not going to run, so what do I need to do? When I'm strong, when I'm saying I'm never going to, okay, right then, not tomorrow, right then, what do I turn off, change, add, remove that relationship, redefine that relationship, leave... What is the decision that when I'm strong and I'm saying, God, I'm never going to do it again. What action in that moment is severe and over the top? What action in that moment is running as far from that sin and as close to God as I can be? Because that's what Joseph is showing us. And, and it works. You know, again, I said, I said a moment ago, Joseph is, is uh, one of my, my favorite characters in the Bible. And when I say one of, I mean like he'd be withstanding Jesus. He's, he's top two or three, <laughs> maybe top two. I mean, he's just incredible. Think about the lives we've seen in Genesis so far. We've spent, spent a little time with Adam and Eve, didn't we? We spent a, a, a little bit more time with Noah. We, we spent a good amount of time with him. We spent a lot of time with Abraham right? A little bit of time with Isaac, a little bit of time with Jacob. Again, what have we already said this morning? Why does God put these lives in front of us? So we can learn. We can learn from their success. We can learn from their failure. We can learn from their faith. We can learn from their lack of faith. God shows us real people struggling, winning, walking with him so that we can learn. God does not hold punches with his Bible heroes. He shows us warts and all, right? Which is what makes Joseph kind of stand out. Joseph is one of only two characters in the Bible. Again, withstanding Jesus. Joseph is one of only two characters. Daniel's the other one of whom there's no recorded sin. And it's not, you know, it's not a little bit that we've got. 25% of Genesis is about Joseph. And in the telling of his life and story, there's, there's no recorded sin. And we can go back to chapter 37, and there's certainly, I mean, it sounds a little arrogant, doesn't it? But, you know, there's arrogant that just comes out wrong, and then there's arrogance that says, you know, I really believe I'm better than you. I really believe God loves me more than you. I don't know what was in Joseph's heart at that moment, if that's what he was really thinking and doing. So I'm not going to call that sin. Definitely a character quality he can grow in, Right? So no, no recorded sin. Does that mean they never sinned? Absolutely not. The Bible already answers that. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That would include Joseph and Daniel. But I do think the reason we see no recorded sin there is I, I do think we're looking at a pretty incredible life. 
he profoundly loved and obeyed God. And I watch him doing that. And you know, folks, he, you know, he's not over here saying, well, I'm a religious person. I'm a churchgoer. So that just right away means I can have no fun in life. All I've got is burden and duty. When you read his story, it doesn't ever feel like, it doesn't ever sound like he's being religious, he's, being, he's obeying because he's got this God he's got to make happy. He's got this religion that he has to follow. And on, on the other hand, it doesn't ever come out that he is following, loving, obeying this God because the big reward at the end, I'm doing this because I'm going to get to go to heaven. Hey, I'm doing this because because I'll be blessed. And by the way, the Bible absolutely teaches that obedience brings blessing. Not necessarily in the next five minutes, but obedience always brings blessing. But you you don't ever read anywhere where that's the driver of what he's doing. He really seems to be loving and obeying God. Because he's worth it. It is the great, great value, the great, great desire of his life, the worth of God. And you talk about, you know, that that not paying off immediately. Y'all heard how the story ended, right? Man, I respected my, my boss. I respected the people around me. I honored and obeyed God. And what was the result? He got falsely accused and sent to prison. And that wasn't jail for a night. As we continue the story next week, he's going to be in prison for years. Is God worth that? Is your God worth that? Let's pray. God, I I want it. I want it to be true of my life. I want you to have that kind of worth in my life. Lord, I, I pray that as we walk through this week ahead, we'll deal with all kinds of relationships and decisions and temptations. We'll have desires, good ones and bad ones. I mean, we're going we're to live a life here this next week, Lord. I, I, I just would... I pray you would help each of us look into our lives... And value your worth in everything we're doing this week. Where is God in this? What does God mean to me in this? God, help me think through that. Understand it. Help me, God, be be patient and merciful and gentle with me. But help me see the value of you as I come to the end of this week. Lord, what I'd want to pray for myself, what I'd want to pray for all of us is that as we come back here next week to worship, there absolutely, it will be so clear in our heart and life that there is no greater value in our lives than you. And that will show up in every desire, that will show up in every conversation, in every relationship, in every decision, in every temptation. There's nothing more overwhelming, nothing bigger than the worth and the value of you. Help us. Help us, Holy Spirit, for that to be so. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.